0: funny, right? (laughs) If you're like me, um, I was, I totally did not want it. I'm like, temperance? Can I pawn that off on someone else? I'm not good at temperance, first off, and it just doesn't sound that exciting. And this is having already done a lot of this classical reading on temperance. I literally forgot about it. And I was like, ah, this is just one of those lame, phone it in weeks, one of the ones that you skip. But the more I got into it, I am thrilled about this virtue. I think you will find it a, one of the many keys to life in a lot of ways. You're, you're, it will probably chart, certainly chart for you, things you're already doing. Wisdom you've already stumbled upon on your own. And it will map that to let you know you're not alone. This is something that the classical tradition has mapped and the Christian tradition has mapped even further. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I have preparing it. There is our title page, and we zoom in. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. This is from 1 Timothy. If I were to ask you, what is the teaching of demons? You, oh, is it some weird satanic rite in the dark, misty corner? So, According to Timothy, it is the hyper-asceticism that was circulating in the early church. That is the teaching of demons. So I thought that as we, of course, resist that, this was a good verse for us to think about to to begin our time with temperance. So what I'd like to do is to follow up the dot, 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 the culmination of this passage in 1 Timothy 1, 4 through 5. Let's say this together. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Such liberty in these verses. Such liberty in these verses. Sometimes we forget that this is essential to the Christian faith, the goodness of creation, but we've let some hyper-asceticisms creep into our faith over the centuries. And Timothy broadcasts loud and clear the goodness of God-given appetites. And how, I mean, how is it that whole traditions have neglected this verse? And certainly as evangelicals, if that's the tradition with which you have a history, which is a part of our identity here, we've definitely neglected part of this verse. This weekend, Wheaton celebrates the release of the community covenant, that is the possibility that faculty could actually consume alcohol. Um, This was a massive step, and even worse, dance. Um, And it just shows us that that weight, that law, has heavily weighed over evangelical traditions. I'm not pointing to other traditions saying, look how bad you are. But think of that verse for a moment. And as has been our tradition, um, let me Keep this up here and give the Holy Spirit some opportunity for silence as we meditate upon this. And let's say it one last time together before that silence. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So as the steam of coffee rises from some of your cups, you can be thinking about this. And if you'd like time for silence, more of it, I strongly, strongly urge you to consider this retreat. Again, I don't, perhaps spots are all filled, but contact Deacon Mary, as Father Andrew said. I am, as I've shared with you many times, a reluctant convert to the retreat. I got kind of dragged in against my will, like by the arm. And I didn't want to do it. I was too busy. And it was an absolutely transformative experience. Simply because of the silence that the Holy Spirit had to work with me. And we can only afford seconds of it in this Sunday service. But we need more. The human heart it needs silence. It's like water for the heart. And this is an opportunity in an exquisite setting for you to get exactly that. If you've never been to Mundelein, it is... There's rumors that if the Vatican went down in a war, that, that, that Mundelein was going to be, I don't know if those rumors are true, but I like them anyway, um, that, that Mundelein was going to be the new Vatican. It's that beautiful. So consider that. This is Notre Dame in Paris. And as you read about the virtues, we're, of course, in the middle of a virtue series. On the outside of Notre Dame, or as we would say here, Notre Dame, Um, you will see a series of virtues on the outside. And and a colleague of mine, a professor at the University of Chicago, a wonderful art historian, she says that the theologians in Paris, which is where the modern university is born, developed a distinctive conception of virtue, one that intimately connected it with the operations of grace. The virtuous act derives from a virtuous habit That is itself a work of grace. Virtue, as a work of grace, possesses power and merit in itself. The vices, they don't even have any being or value in and of themselves. The privation theory of evil, that's called. And that shows up, if you're ever in Paris, you walk around the building, you will see That the virtues have three-dimensional relief, but the vices actually recede into the back of the church. And that's a beautiful illustration of that. And what Dr. Kumler is saying is that there was a grace-infused understanding of virtue at the time when Thomas Aquinas is writing. Thomas Aquinas was writing his ideas about grace in Paris when these were being carved. Now, that's the kind of virtue that we're after here at All Souls, not the self-justification project, effort street, let's make it happen, but grace-infused virtues. Virtues that are a response to grace, not an attempt to please him, but a response to his having done it all for us on the cross. There it was in the 13th century. So let's all become Catholic and go back to this because that's the answer. But what happened is that by the 16th century, semi-Pelagianism was everywhere, everywhere. Now, what I mean by semi-Pelagianism is the idea that you can do it on your own. And I take that as a quote from Bernard McGinn, the poster boy for great Catholic thinkers today, the great historian of mysticism at the University of Chicago. He himself said, I heard it from his own lips, semi-Pelagianism was everywhere. Thomas Aquinas had been forgotten. That grace, virtue sense had been forgotten. And what was trafficking in the 16th century was the idea that you could make this happen, the virtue tradition as the kind of oppressive thing that seems really nice if you've got your act together and you're doing all this humanistic learning and you can work it up on your own. And I can't think of a better expression of this than Andrea Mantegna's Palace and the Vices or um, the War of the Virtues and Vices. It's a famous painting at the Louvre and I wanna take you through it. It's very complicated, which perfectly illustrates the complexity of what had happened to the virtue tradition in the time of Martin Luther. And so what we look at this picture, we zoom in here, there you see our virtues, three of the ones that we've been talking about. There's Joy's fortitude in red at the bottom. He has a club and and a column, and he has the club because he's symbolized with Hercules. Okay, so Hercules had a club. Up at the top there, you see Hal's justice. She's brandishing a sword, and she has a balancing scale to render to each their due. And there is Lady Temperance, and she is pouring liquid. Oh, I'll go back here. Sorry. I went, Well, we'll return to her. She's pouring liquid to symbolize restraint. We'll get back to that. Down at the bottom, you see Minerva, who's called Pallas in Greek. So, Minerva, wisdom, this is you, okay? You are pagan wisdom. That's enough. That'll do it for you. And you might say, all right, well, what is the message that's wrapped around the tree? And the tree is, in some senses, the soul in bondage. It also refers to classical mythology, but we could think of it in that way. And in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin are not words of Scripture. You'd think that. This is done in... The early 16th century in a very advanced humanist court at Bologna. The humanist advisors are telling Andrea Montaigne what to write. And they say, no, no, no. Don't leave scripture aside. We all know scripture. That's just easy. Let's give, how about this? Come divine companions of the virtues who are returning to us from heaven. Expel these foul monsters of vices from our seats. And Minerva is able to do that. Your own wisdom, if you just work it up enough, can expel these virtues away. And so I think what we've got here is the woman, that's chastity coming along and pushing away those vices. That is, this whole painting is an image of the soul bound with vice and Minerva's coming in to fix it all. And we zoom down here and we have sloth and in Latin there at the bottom, a little trick to please the humanists, it says, Eliminate idle leisure and Cupid's bow is broken. Beautiful little play on Latin there. That's, there's your answer, right? If, if, if you have some sloth in your life, then stop being idle. You can do it. It'll happen. Just pull yourself up, make it work. And there's evil sloth is, is now being expelled by your own wisdom, your own Minerva. We move along here and we see... Eternal hatred, fraud, and malice symbolized by this strange monkey. And eternal fraud and malice is now upset because, oh, your own self-justification project has moved into your soul and I can no longer do it. I'm out of here. We move on a little bit further and we see ingratitude who leans back, holding a drunk ignorance. And in the front you have avarice who leans forward. Ignorance has nothing because Minerva is here and she can fix it. We zoom in here and you might wonder, where was our fourth cardinal virtue? We know that the four, we already saw them up top. We've got fortitude, we've got justice, and we've got temperance. What's missing? Prudence. Prudence is in prison. Prudence, the mother of the virtues, is here. And it says, God save me too, the mother of the virtues. This little play in Latin is written on a little message here. Prudence is in that prison, but don't worry, Minerva, your own wisdom, because you are a classical humanist scholar and you're busy studying, you're going to liberate prudence concealed in the depths of your own being. You're going to figure it out. Knowledge will save you. I think this might be a fair interpretation of Mantegna's painting. And then up here, there they are. Now you can see where it all comes together. And so those three virtues are waiting to come and rest. And if Once they're joined with prudence, it's over. The soul has justified itself. You have attained virtue as a human. But the trick about the painting is that you zoom over here and you have this Oh, by the way, has anyone seen the movie Cocktail from back in the 80s? Thank you. We've got some winners there. The reason I've got Tom Cruise there is because I love this understanding of prudence. Prudence is pouring like a really cool cocktail trick one uh, vessel into another. And so that's why Tom Cruise, when he would throw his bottles, I mean, he was this fancy bartender in this movie. I, I, we've got two people in the, who've seen it, so at least I feel good about it. But it just, I love that I, you don't think about temperance that way, right? Temperance as ability to mix a really nice cocktail. But that's the way Montaigne depicted it, and I like it. But if we zoom over here, you'll see finally, now you have that hurricane, that wind, that suspect, strange power of the soul that you can't quite control. That's the one indeterminate in Mantegna's painting. And it almost seems like that just simple cloud is going to blow away those virtues. And you are not going to be able to do it. Because the human heart is a lot more mysterious than Mantegna's painting might initially seem to suggest. This is maybe a. An- indication of the bondage of the will that you know maybe you've had the experience that I've had that I shared with you before the more you learn about the virtues the more excited you get about the possibility of bringing these into your life but you also realize you kind of can't do them the way you want to and that might symbolize be symbolized by that dark cloud so we put that all together and that is the kind of semi-pelagianism perhaps, that Bernard McGinn was referring to. Classical humanists getting it together, figuring it out on their own. Where is Jesus in Mantegna's view? Did you see him anywhere in this image? Does he show up at all? Well, you might say, well, yeah, I got to think allegorically, right? He's, he's sort of Minerva, right? Well, you don't have to think about him. Where is faith, hope, and love that Joy and Howe so appropriately concluded their lessons with, right? You you can't, I mean, fortitude on its own is not enough in the pagan sense. Justice on its own is not enough. It has to be transcended with Christian love. It's not here. What are we to make of this painting? Luther who knew the bondage of the will very experientially, was dissatisfied with those depictions. And with his friend Lucas Cronach, this is the way that he chose in 1529, just a few decades after Mantegna, this is the way that he chose to depict the actual condition of the human heart. And you've seen these before, I hope. There are countless examples. He gave us endless riffs on this, Lucas Cronach did, in consultation with Luther. And it is very clear, he says, the key to unlock the scriptures, the way to underneath this pile of sheets that the Bible might be. But then you poke it and you say, oh, there's a human underneath those sheets. I feel a body under there. That body Underneath the sheet of the scriptures is the message of law and gospel. (laughs) I know that the vestry, I think, is in the process of reading a book that is unpacking this mystery. Law on this side and gospel on the other. Luther says, here is a map that actually can help you. We zoom down here. Now that is the soul in complete bondage. Sin and death are sending that soul into the fires of hell, and what you have there is Moses pointing to the law, and the law is good, or pointing to perhaps the virtue tradition. Here's the way to be temperate. And this person is like, I would love to follow that, but the problem is sin and death are only further animated the more you tell me what I need to do. They're actually equipped and empowered to chase me with more severity, the more I learn what, is it, what it is I'm supposed to be up to as a human being. This is Luther's perspective. We zoom up here, and that's the story. God is off in the distance, saying these are the things you're supposed to do. Law, and law is good. And there's Adam and Eve. This is the bondage that we are all in because of something that happened to us and happened as a human race and happened to creation. And so there's nothing we can do to extricate ourselves from this situation. And so you see that it's a dead tree that we are in the, in the side over there. We are under this dead tree of our own efforts and possibilities. Luther is like, are you beginning to now get a sense of what your actual life is like? And if you don't think that it is, that is what it's like. Talk to someone who lives with you. Talk to your roommate. Talk to your spouse. Say, does my life resemble this or does it actually resemble the Mantegna painting with Minerva coming in and me being always the hero shining in and fixing the situation and you love being with me all the time? This is Luther saying, here's actuality. Here's real life. We zoom down here and then the gospel is preached. And and by the way, you might look at all that German down there and wonder what is that? You know what that is. You don't need a humanist education. It is simply little bits from the book of Romans. The Roman road, we would call it, is evangelicals. It's all clear, crystal clear right there. It's scripture. And what does that person do? John the Baptist points... To himself, no, he's the embodiment of the law, but the law at its best holding that book can point away from itself and say there's one person who has done it, and there's Jesus with the super soaker jet stream of blood coming out of his chest, splashing with the splash of imputation onto that helpless naked Adam, which is you and me. The second Adam fixes the problem of the first and only he can do it because he perfectly fulfilled the law. And you look down up here and of course there's the resurrection. Not only has he defeated sin on the cross, but he has also defeated death with the resurrection. He rises in glory. He gives us hope. There is Satan falling in the background. You can see. And there again, it's all spelled out perfectly. From the Bible as clear, straightforward as possible. The question I have for us is which one of these encapsulates what we're doing as a congregation at All Souls? Our strange split identity. Should we be pursuing the right-hand project or should we be pursuing the left-hand project? Which one encapsulates who we are. We constantly refer to ourselves as both high church and evangelical. This is something that we did not invent. It is something that's kind of in our DNA. Our catechist emeritus, Alan Jacobs, said this is what defines us as a congregation. We have both of these aspects going on. And so I think that we want to somehow incorporate both of these and I I wonder if that is possible but with the priority going to 1529 and I think what that would look like is this so what you see is that the the ground image is law and gospel and when you take law and gospel and you transpose mantenga onto it what we can see is that minerva really can't do much at all because our own wisdom is just bound by law we're, we're, and right where the hell flames were is where the bound soul is nothing can happen but what's kind of and there's god in the background looking at us expecting us to do something and we'll never get it and adam and eve is what comprises the situation that we're in but what i really like about this connection is that Over on the right-hand side, where is the prison of prudence? What has transposed over it? The, The resurrection, the tomb. The prison of prudence of your own things that you need to get together and have to figure out what to do in your life is the tomb that Jesus burst from. He's the one. He is our prudence, we could say. And when we look up at the resurrection... He is our temperance, he is our justice, he is our fortitude. Jesus is the four cardinal virtues for us. That is the only way I can think of, of fusing these two visions together with the priority going to the evangelical tradition that saved the church perhaps from that semi-Pelagianism in which it was bound. We pressed Professor McGinn a little bit on this in the setting that we were in where we were having this discussion with Catholics and Protestants, and he was like, yes, there's something about that Luther that recovered this buried tradition. As a Catholic, he could say that. You know there's a postage stamp that the Vatican has issued this year with Martin Luther on it? There's some wisdom there that we need not be embarrassed about. And that we can rejoice when we see it in the Catholic tradition. And it is there. It is there. And so our split identity at All Souls might not just because, be because we're confused, but be because that actually reflects the horrific condition of the divided global church. That we can't throw some of our ecumenical brothers and sisters under the bus. That we have to say, no, we want, we want you to be involved as well. That's one way of thinking about this. So, as we stop there, and I want to now talk about our sister temperance, and I'm going to use these two books to do it, but before, because we have so much, such luxurious time to burn this morning, um, before we do that, can I um, entertain any questions or comments about what I just said? Go ahead. Every single, what a perfect question, because every single action that we do at All Souls liturgically has to be a response to grace. And the minute it becomes a performance for one another or for God, then we're in deep trouble. And you might as well just leave and find another place to worship. Because that is going to be bondage. Because then we're going to be the church that has it together. That Well, once Church of the Res figures it out, then they'll be as high church as we are. Oh, forgive us if we think that way. We have a unique style of worship here, but it has to be grace all the way down. And I think that's the way it functions. And that's why it's a liberation to the soul. But if we mess up liturgically, does that mean that you know, the buzzer goes off and we lose for the, for the Sunday? No, there's grace that permeates it all. So, yes, you can be high church and evangelical and grace infused, but it is a balancing act, isn't it? That's why we call ourselves the All Soul Circus. <laughs> that would be one thought. Go ahead, James. Right, and and that Dr. Gordon is. I hope what we can do when we put these two together is that we're in regard to creation and what we heard about this morning. Some of you will hear. This is what temperance is all about. This is why we're about to talk about temperance and the goodness of creation, because when you just have the right hand side then you are in a situation that we evangelicals are in, where we're realizing, my goodness, have we been starved for serious discussion about the virtues. And that's why we're having this series, because there's this huge groundswell in the evangelical church of saying, what about habit? We've left people cold. We've said, look, law and gospel, there you go, figure it out. Uh, No, 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 I'm not going to tell you any details, because then you'll just be law again. But no, we've got to bring this together. So I think what James is saying, I couldn't agree with that more. That's why we've got to now have a discussion about temperance and creation. I hope that is a way of honoring that very important observation. Go ahead. Is the everything in Timothy temperance? That's what we're going to... Well, now it sounds like we're moving toward temperance. So let's talk about it. Let's do that. Um, Is that fair? Because that's a big big question and and we've got to discuss it. So again, there she is mixing her cocktail... And who are our guides? I'm so glad Bob Roberts is not here. Bob, are you here? Good. Oh, wait, Bob, are you here? Okay, good. I, I was only going to say that, Bob, because I'm, I'm cribbing all your work, and I thought it might be embarrassing for you to hear that, but it actually might be a wonderful um, discovery as to whether or not um, I accurately interpreted your suggestions. But Bob wrote the article on temperance in this fantastic book. Fantastic article. It has been life-giving to me. And so what I'd like to share with you is the combination of Joseph Pieper and what I think Bob is saying, of course, feel free to interrupt because I would love to hear these continuations, but when you do the hard work of putting this article together, I hope that um, I can just take those riches that I took from him and spill them out in front of you. Lips that touch liquor shall not touch ours. I mean, Is that not what you think of when you think of temperance, right? some of us were discussing how isn't it funny how the temperance movement became the exact opposite of temperance because temperance was about moderation and it became complete abstinence which is by definition not temperance and so take those ideas that caused me to be afraid of this topic and bring them uh, put them aside for a moment and let's try to think about this freshly so both of our authors Professor Roberts and Pieper are dissatisfied with the idea of moderation. And I love that. The the idea of the mean, right there in the middle, you've got the bad, you've got the good, you've got the extreme here, extreme here, let's bring it together. They both are saying the more you explore the wisdom of temperance, the emasculated concept of moderation has no place in a doctrine which asserts the love of God, the fountainhead of all virtues, that knows neither mean nor measure. Don't you dare be moderate in your love of God. Do not temper that. And Pieper's like, this idea of moderation, you've got to get that out of your head if you're a believer, to a certain extent, to a certain extent. And in the same way, what Bob says, for Aristotle, yes, temperance was a mean with regard to pleasures, but I love this, we appreciate the lameness of a quantitative understanding of temperance as a mean between extremes. <laughs> and I hope you feel that in a kind of language. well, don't get too excited about that. Just be, I mean, there's a sense in which there are, in that simple parallel diagram there with extreme here, extreme here, right in the middle, what we're gonna do in this is say, what about the different vectors that we could bring in in regard to these, the, the idea of temperance? It, we're gonna go from the black and white of Aristotle, we might say, as important as he is, to the full living color of a Christian view of temperance. Denise told me, she said, that every learning from our last two sessions, she said, everyone who, who presents should, should not only have a handout, but, but have the definition at the top. And, and I'm like, that's a really good point. That would be nice to do. But the problem is there's so many definitions of temperance, I wouldn't know which one to pick. And so I'm going to give you a few. Sophrosini, the Greek word, according to Pieper, embraces a directing reason in the widest sense. So if you want to be temperate, it's not just how to regulate your body's pleasures, you're going to have to throw your intellect into it at top speed. It's going to require all of your mental resources to be temperate. And I hope that strikes you as exciting. Oh, cool. This is an intellectual project that's going to challenge me. So that's what the original Greek word entails that doesn't survive in our lame word temperance. Temperare in Latin, to dispose various parts into a unified whole. We talk about wellness, right? That's the stuff that they're going to have the middle school seminar on to indoctrinate children with wellness, right? But temperare has that learning to balance and bring a wholeness to the way your Appetite's function, that's another way to think about The richness of this forgotten, neglected word. The serenity of spirit was Thomas Aquinas' second definition of temperance. And we, again, it's popular to talk about mindfulness, mindfulness. And what everybody, what they want from mindfulness is there in the concept of temperance. But there's not going to be some meditation group billboard that says come get temperance here there should what mindfulness will give you temperance will give you that and more quies anima the serenity of spirit i love this from peeper selfless self-preservation so you're going to have to do some introspection in temperance but people is saying it's not a bad introspection It's the kind of self-monitoring that is selfless. And that's really hard to do. It's not navel-gazing, but you will be required to think hard about the way your body is dealing with these appetites that God gave you. Those appetites are good. And I love selfless self-preservation. And Pieper says that if you become temperate, you become beautiful in the widest sense. A temperate soul is radiantly beautiful. He's passionate about this virtue. Bob says that temperance is a nearly perfect word. Sometimes we're dissatisfied with the words because they are, oh, well, that doesn't come down and translate to us in English in the right way, but to temper. Temper doesn't just mean, whoa, cool, cool down, but it could be turn it up, turn it up, love that dinner more. Could be that. Experience that pleasure more intensely. Or you've overdone that pleasure and you can tell because you don't enjoy it anymore. It is that state of character in which the bodily appetites successfully conform to the larger concerns of the moral life. That's why it requires your intellect. I'll say it again. Temperance is that state of character in which the bodily appetites successfully conform to the larger concerns of the moral life. So bust out your ethics textbook. Get your environmentalist knowledge into play. Learn about food culture. Know the kinds of wines that can accommodate to your budget or not. If you're under the community covenant, which is perfectly appropriate, think about all these things at the same time. All of this, it's going to be different for everybody in this room. Students in this room are in a, your temperance is going to look different than perhaps the temperance of some Wheaton professors or and the temperance from who knows what's going on, depending on your condition in life. It might look very different. There are no rules. There's no formula. Wouldn't that be nice? If you could simply say, well, I know not to do this and to do this. That is easy in comparison to the challenge of temperance with which we are equipped by Jesus to undergo. And I love this. Unlike self-control, temperance is a feature of the well-disposed appetite. If you are having to exert self-control, you are not yet at the point where you are temperate. Because self control, your appetites, you're saying, oh, I want that. And you're like, no. But the temperate person wants the right thing and doesn't want the wrong thing. Like, wow, I wouldn't want that. That just wouldn't be good for my body. That's temperance. And so self control is, in some sense, a sign that you're almost there, but, but exert it. Yes, exert it, but pray for the day where self control will be, in some senses, the elementary school, and you're now. In the advanced class. Is that a fair way of thinking about it? Perhaps. The umbrella term of temperance. Brings in. Our lesson that we heard from James on. And Sarah on. Gluttony. And also. Our lesson that we learned. On lust. From earlier in the fall. From Bethany and Joel. It all comes together under temperance. Chastity. Chastity. Continence, humility, pride as well, gentleness, mildness, mildness, studiositas are modes of the realization of the discipline of temperance. Unchastity, incontinence, pride, uninhibited wrath, curiositas are forms of intemperance. And by the way, studiositas and curiositas—that's just the classic understanding. If you know, you can want to know too much. You can have an Uh, We we don't seem to, oh, I love that student. She or he just pours herself or himself so much into knowledge. What a great student. Wait, maybe they're going too far. (laughs) Because studiousness is distinct from curiosity, which is a a bad form of intellectual appetite. You might need to be temperate in your approach to knowledge. We don't think of temperance that way, but that's the way the classical tradition thought of it in this big, beautiful umbrella. And think about that. Pieper says that you need to be able to exert wrath. This book beautifully points out that in Buddhist understandings, wrath is extinguished, but in Christian understandings, you need to hold on to it because you might need it. It can be good, but it's wrath under control. That's what temperance gives us. And again, to return to Bob, rational state, uh, temperance is a rational state of appetite, not just for alcohol, but for food, drink, and sex. It is a dispositional desire or caring for these things that is right for the individual as a particular human being in his or her circumstances. So that means, again, no rules. Read your own situation. Pray, Lord, what does temperance look like here? All these things are at play in this incredible virtue. Now, I'm choosing an image of the Fox River because it's a river near us. I wanted Joel's, oh, if you have not seen them yet, Professor Sheasley has launched into this unbelievable new strata of painting. I know a lot of you have seen his Lincoln Marsh work, but my goodness, what he has been able to do now that he is retired these things are incredible, and he's gone to the Fox River, and I wanted to get one of these paintings from him, but it wasn't on his website, and I didn't want to bother him. So I'm choosing a bad image of the Fox River, and I'm, a river is going to bring together both Peeper and Roberts for me, for a way to bring this, the, the two notions together. For Peeper, temperance is not itself the stream, but it is the shore. The banks from whose solidity the stream receives the gift of straight, unhindered course of force, descent, and velocity. If you are temperance, the river of pleasure can rush through your body with more velocity. (laughs) That's an interesting way to think about it. But if you think of the addicted person, are they enjoying that drag? Not really. Not the way that a temperate person might. And so when you bring those, when those banks are strong, the temperate person, then the water can really rush. But temperance is not the water itself, it's the guide. That's one way that Pieper describes this incredible virtue. And what we learn from Professor Roberts is that there there are no formulas for what it means to be temperate in regard to food, sex, drink, and intellectual appetite. But we can ask questions about them. Questions like, is it noble? kalon in Greek. Consisting with my dignity as a human being. Consistent with my dignity as a human being. Is it consistent with my health? That's going to change across the board, depending on where some of us might be in regard to our health. Is it within, right now, well, I won't go into um, What's going on at the Miller and Household, you'll notice I'm the only one here, but temperance looks a lot different when some people in your house are ill. (laughs) Is it within God's will? Of course, that question is important. Is it consistent with the well-being of my community, the community of my family, if you have one that you live with, the community of a church or a city, for example? What does it mean to be temperate in that regard? And is it, of course, is it within my means, the tough one? And this is what we were talking about when we discussed gluttony. Now, I've got another view of the Fox River here. And just for a moment, I mean, we could maybe stop and Well, we can't. We've got to keep going. Okay, you, get, you got those questions there. And I'm liberated by the fact that these are recorded, if anyone wants to look up that stuff. So temperance is an integration of concerned understanding into the appetites. And so what I've got here is the Fox River with all of these different tributaries pouring into it. So in that river of temperance in your soul, you break open this dam and you learn about sustainable practices, for example. And all of a sudden, this new flow of water is coming into your understanding of what it means to be temperate in regard to food. Or let's imagine you figure out cooking in a new way. And you've launched into this deep dimension of figure out Laguna Pueblo pottery and how that works beautifully with the food. It actually is a thing. Um, There's Native American cooking out there. I'm learning about it. And you can say, wow, now I have a new dimension of temperance in my life. That's just a possibility. So that's another tributary that's flowing in. And secondly, a habituation of one's own appetites in light of these understanding. So the tributary flows in of new areas of knowledge or concern. I'm in a relationship. Temperance Temperance is therefore going to look different now as I interact with this person in the relationship and that flows in and I habituate that new knowledge into the stream of temperance. And this is what gives it the intellectual dimension. All of your learning is pouring in how you regulate and think about and liberate your appetites. Temperance is tempered by more virtuous concerns. And what this means is that Temperance in the green is in relationship with justice. It has to incorporate justice. And what that's going to look like, again, case-by-case case situation. Pieper says, we always talk about adultery and lust. We need to talk about adultery and justice. Because it is an injustice to the family to commit this act. That's, and that is going to perhaps wake someone up to that risk in a way that it might not otherwise, it was just indulging your body. No, you are violating the rights of your family, the things that are justly due to them. And that is what amplifies these virtuous concerns. I heard a preacher once say, I have a prayer that can annihilate adultery. I was like, that sounds like weird magic. But he was right when I heard the prayer. (laughs) And you know what the prayer was? Lord, may he or she that is the person that you're tempted to, find me unattractive. End of affair. Why? Because what was really going on with the affair was not lust, but pride. You were being admired by that person. And when you prayed that prayer, you broke that wire. That's what temperance brings in these other concerns that animates the virtue, that brings it to living color. Seldom, if ever, do adult human beings have purely physical appetites and pleasures. And once we know that, then we're liberated to think creatively and justly about bringing these different virtues together. I've got two more quotes for you um, to conclude with. Concerned understanding of sex is centered on family life, which provides the conceptual and emotional context for sexual appetite. So the desire of the spouse is desire for the permanent partner who is also the mother or father of one's actual or potential children. Regular exposure to Christian thought about marriage and perhaps limited exposure to alternative understandings may be helpful in guiding you in temperance in a family. So when you begin to understand sex as oriented toward the telos of the raising of children, either potential or in the past, who knows, it intensifies the pleasure because it brings in all these other dimensions of justice and things, and it becomes more robust and full. And you're therefore more able to push away temptations. It's ridiculous, absurd. Why would I do that? Because of this full-orbed familial sense of what once was merely the physical appetite of sex. That's exciting. And then finally, we've got to love this one. James will know it well, probably hasn't memorized. Man invented cooking before he thought of nutrition. To be sure, food keeps us alive, but that is only its smallest and most temporary work. Its eternal purpose is to furnish our sensibilities against the day when we shall sit down at that heavenly banquet and see how gracious the Lord is. Nourishment is necessary only for a while. What we shall need forever is taste. Robert Farrar Capon. Keep in the Supper of the Lamb, that incredible book, that Episcopal priest and food critic for the New York Times. He's saying that these dimensions of taste are actually something that increases your temperance, and then you bring in the dimension of hospitality into that as well. So all of these different tributaries, I hope I'm giving an image, are feeding in to our river of our appetites that God has given us that are good, that are embanked, by the strong muscles of, of the boundaries, we might say, of temperance that keep the, the channel in the middle. We've got um, a couple of minutes for comments and questions. And I hope I was just, Bob, I know it must be weird to hear this, but I'm just thankful, I'm thankful for your work. Great job. Thanks. <laughs> so, um, questions or comments? This is exciting stuff. Yes. Yeah That's what was so surprising to me to think about it in regard to um, something like humility, because if I'm prideful, I'm being intemperate with my self-love. And avarice. If I want too much stuff, I'm being intemperate with my desire for goods and comforts. So it really has, it's like the dial on the appetite. So I, it's, once you recast it that way, Sarah, I begin to think, what can't it apply to? It pretty much is across the board. It's these dials. Um, so it's, it kind of becomes an endless virtue in that way. We got one minute. Other, Go ahead. I think in some cases that temperance in this situation, you would say that for this particular season of life perhaps or the, the situation I find myself in because of perhaps procrastination if it was me, then I'm, I'm eating would be inappropriate. A quiet, enjoyable meal based upon the pressures, the duties that are placed upon me is actually the right thing to do. Um, and so temperance actually liberates you because there's no formula. You might, and we're coming up on Lent, we're at a time where it's temperate in Lent to restrain yourself in ways you wouldn't perhaps for the rest of the year. And that challenges those appetites. So we might say that um, whether it's a feverish deadline or a um, season of the church year is a different um, climate in which temperance can operate. And so a common sense applies and thoughtful engagement of what your given task requires of you. Um, so good point. hope that's helpful. I think we are just out of time. Thank you, everybody. Look into this.